All right, let's bow in prayer together today. Scripture teaches us to bless the Lord, O my soul, to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And Father, we know that the context of those exhortations is not one of easy life, but one that rises out of the difficulties of life as men and women have known it down through history. And we recognize that we are not unusual, that our difficulties are really not greater than those of others who have gone before us. May we be people of faith as these that we study in Scripture were. Father, may we avoid the pitfalls that many about whom we also read in Scripture, the pitfalls into which they fell. Lord, may we really learn from the Word of God. May we be hearers, not hearers only, but doers also, to apply the Word to ourselves and to allow it to minister through us to those that are dear to us and others that may be only near to us physically. Father, I pray that through this time this morning, you will be glorified and we will be blessed. We ask for your blessing upon the service that's going on right now too and the other classes throughout this Sunday school that your will might be accomplished in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like, if you will, for us to turn to Genesis chapter 45. I'd like to read beginning at verse 9. Genesis 45, 9. The context, of course, uh, for those of you who have been with us the last few Sundays, Joseph's brothers have met back with him again because the silver cup of Joseph was found in Benjamin's bag, and so they were brought back to Joseph's palace, and Joseph has revealed his identity now to his brothers after this more than a year of contact, first time that he, the brothers came and now the second time, and uh, we continue on with that, uh, that scenario here this morning with verse 9. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. And you shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, lest you and your household and all that you have be impoverished. And behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. As we have noted, this has been a very traumatic event for these brothers. Uh, they had never encountered such, uh, such a stressful experience in all their lives up to this time. Because through all these months, and, and then the past few days before this, uh, this breaks here, 
Uh, they, they simply felt that they were in the hands of, of, of a man who had no mercy, no compassion, and who c literally could control their destiny. And of course, during the process of this, their, their faith in God was growing, but it hadn't yet achieved a maturity by which they could say, even as Joseph would later say, and as we read last time near the end of class, that... Uh, these things may have happened with the intent of evil, but uh, God has turned it to good. These brothers are still struggling here to get a handle on this whole thing. And it's interesting how Joseph so quickly changes the subject here from trying to tell them who he was and that he was their brother whom they sold into Egypt, that he'd been a slave in Egypt all these years, and now he had risen to the position of prime minister and, I mean, this thing was just going right on by them, and they were having a really, really difficult time with it. But now he switches subjects so quickly, right in the midst of it, and he begins to urge them now to go and hurry back to Canaan and get the whole clan and bring them back to Egypt. I mean, this thing hasn't really taken root yet uh, in their hearts and minds, and he's already telling them what to do about it. He instructed them to make haste, to bear the wonderful news to their father Jacob that Joseph lives. And not only does he live, but incredible as it may seem, he is Lord of all Egypt. <laughs> I don't know if Joseph thought much about what those words would do to their father Jacob. I mean, could he handle it? Was his heart strong enough for this kind of news? The question is, how could it be? How could it be that this little Jewish boy sold off into a foreign land could now be Lord of all Egypt? And the answer is only by the power of El Shaddai, only by the power of God Almighty. It could not happen any other way. It can't be by fortuitousness. It can't be by uh, you know, good fortune or any other thing. You know, the luck of the draw or whatever. There's no draw here. God's in power. And what's interesting is you read through this passage, you discover that this power has not gone to Joseph's head. I mean, he's not become heady with the sense that I rule this land. But instead we discover, as we read there in verse 9, that he gives full credit to Elohim. He said, it is God who has given me this position. It is God who has empowered me. It's God who has brought this all together. He is responsible. He knew and fully understood. Without hearing any declaration in his ear by God, at least none that's recorded in Scripture, but he knew that God was in full control. Again, let me remind you what he did know, of course, was the words that God had spoken to Abraham and to Isaac, and to Jacob, which had been transmitted to him through the years. And so he knew that of the spoken word of God. But in his own spirit, God had used that so that he knew that God was in control of his life and of all the circumstances that surround him. Sometimes we say, well, I'm doing okay under the circumstances. We, we had a president, Simpson, years ago, who used to say, well, what are you doing under the circumstances, you know? <laughs> well, uh, this, this is 
a, a way of, of understanding that whatever are the circumstances, God is not gone. God is not unable to deal with us in the circumstances. What we discover here further is that for Joseph, his faith is not a veneer. It's just not a whitewashing of this man. But his faith has penetrated to the very depths of his soul. And his thoughts and his words and his actions are permeated with the reality of God. That God is here and God is in control. And as he deals with his brothers, he deals with them in, in a way that appears to be merciless. But when the, the moment, the propitious moment comes along, he, he opens his heart and reveals himself in the reality of who he really is. Man chosen by God and God's servant even to his own brothers. Even though it would be, what, 1,800 years yet down the line, he, he understood the words that Paul spoke as he stood there in Athens and broadcast this new message to these waiting Athenians. And he said that it is in God that we live and move and have our being. Now, the ancient Athenians didn't understand that because their pantheon of gods was made up of nothing but superhuman beings, of, of you know, giant men and women who, who did everything that human beings do, but only in much greater excess, and they got away with it because they were gods, you see. And, uh, but, but to know or to think that there is a divine person in whom we must live and move and have our very being, Hopefully that truth has penetrated to the depths of our heart, even as it did that of Joseph. And that we live our lives under that understanding. I'd like for us to turn to that frequently uh, referred to passage in Psalm 139, which further illustrates this as the psalmist David coming to a profound understanding of God. The first six verses, the, the whole psalm, of course, is a beautiful psalm and, and relates very much to, to what Mary Keeney is uh, you know, telling us about what we ought to support because that's this, this whole passage, this whole psalm is behind why an organization such as that even exists. Oh, Lord. Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down, and art it intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. We know with our heads that this is true. But, but we, do we know in our hearts the reality of the words of the psalmist there? Do we really know in our hearts that God does understand? He understands our hurts. He understands our joys. He understands our, our uh, anticipations, 
our anxieties. He understands all these things. Do we really realize that he is intimately acquainted with us? He knows us better than we know ourselves. And then on top of it all, he has his hand on us. He has his hand on every single one of us here. What for? For his good pleasure. For his good will. And when his good will is carried out, it is for our best. Because he is a benevolent monarch. The Lord of the universe cares more about us than we can care about ourselves or that we can care about another person. We may love our parents, we may love our children, we may love our brothers and sisters, but we can't possibly love them the way God loves us. And since he loves us with such depth, his hand upon us has got to be there for good and not for evil. We have to recognize that these words were not just realities to David. They weren't given to David just to apply to him because he was such a wonderful man. Because we know he was not such a wonderful man. He was a man of failure as, as we are men and women of failure. And yet God understood him and God had his hand on him. I don't know when it finally struck the brothers but certainly it did occur to them, our father is going to discover what we did. Our father is going to know the reality of what happened to Joseph. He would come to the awful realization that we cold-heartedly sold our own flesh and blood into captivity, and for 20 long years we lived a lie before our father, allowing him to believe all that time that his beloved son had died horribly in the fangs and the claws of wild beasts. It could have caused him and certainly caused him many nightmares. Can you imagine the thoughts that would go through your heart and mind if your child you believed had been ripped apart by a ferocious animal? And certainly Joseph had many, uh, Jacob had many nightmares over that thing. And these brothers had allowed it to happen. They perpetrated it. And they were so hard-hearted they didn't even care whatever was happening to their father, Jacob. So the question is, how is Jacob going to take this news? I mean, it's a good news, bad news situation for the brothers. Because Jacob's going to say, oh, that's wonderful, but wait a minute. <laughs> you mean you guys, and you can put whatever words after that you want. You can just imagine the way Jacob might react to such news. Would the incredible joy of discovering that Joseph is alive overpower the terrible thing that they had done to him and to their father by living a lie before him? What is love? If you truly love someone, can you live a lie before them for 20 years without seemingly having a, a twinge of conscience, at least none that was visible to the person you're lying to? Is that love? Surely isn't biblically defined love. But they weren't sure of what was going to happen. To their credit, though, they were finally ready to take the responsibility for their actions. 
They were finally willing to go through with it. They were willing to let their father know, to tell their father, not to say, oh, well, Joseph, we can't do it. Send a messenger down, uh, write a letter, do something. We can't tell him. No. They would go back and themselves tell their father face to face what they had done. That is shouldering their responsibility for their evil deeds. It is facing the consequences, whatever they may be. As we noted in a previous lesson, they have been in the process and have now well learned what Moses expressed to us so well in Numbers chapter 32 when he said, be sure your sin will find you out. Words that literally echo down through the halls of history, bouncing from one wall to the other as it moves down through time. Be sure your sin will find you out. I mean, look at history and look at the way men and women have lived and look at the rise and fall of emperors and kings and queens and dukes and duchesses and princesses and, and look at the horrible way many of them perished. Some like on the scaffold. Be sure your sin will find you out. Their, their sin had found them out and they have already acknowledged it. It may have taken 20 years but they have become a great illustration to us of the fact that God will not allow unconfessed, unrepented sin to exist in the lives of people who then go on and try to pass off on the world that they are truly children of the living God. And we've seen it all around us, people crashing from pinnacles of power because they were trying to be angels of light when their heart was full of darkness, trying to preach the gospel when in their heart they were harboring sin. I think it's very important for us to realize that God is not nearly so concerned with the fact that we might be embarrassed as he is with our spiritual welfare, with our honesty before him and our obedience to him. If we become embarrassed, it's because of our own foolhardiness when it comes to this kind of thing. And, and whatever it takes, God will break it open. And he does it time and time again, much to the embarrassment of many people who claim his name. Well, the brothers had already experienced a great deal of shame. They had been shamed before Joseph the very man that they had sold into Egypt. And then they had been shamed before their kid brother, Benjamin. I'm sure Benjamin stood there open-mouthed and thought, they did this to my brother? He didn't know. They'd never told him because they knew he'd squeal to his father. So they kept him in the dark about the whole thing down through the years, and I'm sure it just was as big, almost as big a shock to him as it would be to Jacob. The only thing about for Benjamin, the whole blow would be softened in that he was in this whole, well, the last meeting at least, with, with Joseph, and he was standing in Joseph's presence. So for him, it was somewhat of a softer blow than it would be for, for Jacob. But it is again to the credit of these brothers that they did not shrink from the prospect of being exposed for their sin in front of their father and in front of the whole clan, their wives and their children, and maybe even their grandchildren. 
Can you imagine how humiliating it is for a man to stand there and for his wife to, to discover if he hadn't told her, and I kind of think they hadn't told anybody. They had made a pact of silence amongst themselves. For their wives to discover that they had been living this lie and for their children to become aware of this? You mean you sold their uncle into slavery? It was going to be a highly humiliating thing, but they were prepared to face the music. They were now prepared in their spirits and in their minds and their hearts to go and stand on their two feet in front of the whole clan and admit their sin. That isn't something they could trump up in themselves. That's obviously the work of the living God in the hearts of these brothers. God had placed them in a fiery crucible and as a result, they had matured spiritually more in one year than they had in all the years of their lives up to that moment. You know, sometimes God does that. He suddenly puts, and we think, we almost feel like Job sometimes. One thing after another falls in on us. We think, is this ever going to come to an end? Has God abandoned us? Does he not know what's going on? Yeah, he does. But he's turned up the heat for some reason. He's allowing it to happen because he has something he wants us to be or to do, or both, really. And he's got to purify us for that event to take place. And so the crucible is heated, and hopefully we grow. We, we see in all of this how perfect God's timing is. God sent the famine not just at any old moment in time, it wasn't just a kind of a, the throw of the dice or the, you know, the throwing the dart at the board and wherever it landed, you know, then ends up, no. Just as scripture tells us in Galatians 4.4 that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. So it is at the right moment, God brings about every event that transpires in the course of history. These brothers were not ready until this time for this famine to be used to put them in this fiery crucible and for their hearts to be soft enough that they could now respond to God's work. God knew this. So God sent the famine at just the right time. Joseph's brothers, along with dozens of other examples in Scripture, serve to make it clear to us that God sends trials into our lives to, perp to, to, to produce growth and maturity, spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. We're told in Hebrews that for, whom, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he chastises. That doesn't mean he whacks us around because we did something bad necessarily. It's just as you and I hopefully don't bring discipline to our children only when they do bad and then we do something, you know, to make them understand they do something bad, but we lead them along the way and we put rules and regulations in their lives to discipline them so they will know what is right and know what is wrong and walk the way of God. And so when God brings discipline, it's for us to understand the truth and walk in that truth. And if we accept the trials that come into our lives, for what God intends them to be, then we grow stronger spiritually. But if we reject them, we do so to our own detriment. 
And often it, it produces a hardness of heart. It produces someone who, who turns his or her back on God, maybe, you know, at least temporarily. It produces a cynicism. That's the way God is. And that's a lack of understanding of who God really is because if we know the Scripture, we know what kind of God we're dealing with. And no matter how harsh the problem may seem to be or how difficult the circumstances, we know, we know that God is doing it for our good because that's His character. That's who He is. He can't do it for it. I mean, God can't stand up there and be a meanie. God can't be a Grinch because it's impossible for Him to be one. It's not his nature. He's not comprised of that kind of, uh, those kinds of attributes. He's a God of love and a God of mercy. Difficult trials, of course, don't always come into our lives because we have unconfessed sin to deal with. Remember Job's case. Why did difficulty come into Job's life? Well, it came into Job's life to glorify God for one thing. And as we read through the book of Job, is God glorified in our eyes? I hope so. But it was also to make Job more the man of God he wanted him to be, so that he could learn to pray for those that were errant in their actions and their beliefs, as he had to do for his friends. To teach those friends to repent of their arrogance and to know that God is sovereign. And they don't know the answers to why tragedy comes or difficulties come in the life of someone. It's easy to, for us to say, well, you know, God did that to you because you did this. We don't know that. We have to pray. You know, the scripture teaches us to pray for one another. It doesn't tell us to go around and hit each other over the head with the Bible. It's up to God to convict with the word. Not up to us to determine the cause and effect relationship in, in another person's life. We have noted uh, the particular passage I want to read here more than once before, but it seems so fitting again in this circumstance to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Because not only in the days of Peter or in the days of David or in the days of Joseph is this passage a reality, but it's just as much a reality today to each of us. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Why? That he may exalt you at the proper time, casting your anxiety upon him because, why? He cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like, about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. In other words, you're not alone in this, pal. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself do what? Perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Why in the world does he do all this? So that we might be perfected and confirmed and strengthened and established. 
because he wants us to be strong trees in a world of hurricanes. He wants us to be able to bear fruit, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And it all starts out with the first word, six-letter word in verse 6, humble. And that's the stumbling block for so many people. So many people will not turn to the living God because they will not humble themselves in, before him. We're just too proud. We're going to go our way. We know what's best for us, and we don't trust God. If we don't trust God, it's because we don't know God because he's absolutely and totally trustworthy. And we are not because the scripture teaches us that our hearts are desperately wicked. Even as born-again believers, we have wickedness that wells up within us. The old man is not completely dead yet. He struggles around in there. And our lifetime, of course, is the process of crucifying that old man in there, nailing him to the wall, if you will, and trying to keep him nailed there. Keeps coming down and creating a problem. But if we develop the attitude of humility, of humbling ourselves before God, this is the biggest roadblock we have to hurdle in our walk with God. And learning that the enemy is out there prowling around and we have the power to resist him. Firm in the word and in the power of God, God rebuke him. Even as the archangel Michael prayed as he stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan over the body of Moses, the Lord rebuked you. In Genesis 45.10, in the passage we just read earlier, we read that Joseph gave his brothers an urgent message to give to their father. Come to me without delay. Pack it up and get down here. Joseph made it clear. He says, I'm not asking for a visit. You're moving down here lock, stock, and barrel. You're leaving Canaan. You're coming to Egypt. The whole clan. Why? Because this famine is still going to rage for five more years. You've only seen two. And, and the intensity of it is going to increase as one dry year builds upon another. And the famine is going to be intolerable. You must move down here. Bring everything, even your herds, because their herds were the primary source of wealth for the family. So bring it all. Bring them all. Come on down to Egypt. If he didn't move, he said, you know what the results are going to be? The whole clan is going to be impoverished. You're going to be living in absolute poverty. I think there's an important truth here for us to understand because God is behind this. God has sent Joseph down there as he, you know, we later, we, we read last week, uh, he would later say in, in chapter 50 of Genesis, recorded in chapter 50 of Genesis, that God had sent him down there to prepare the way. So this is God's plan. God wants the people of, of Israel to move down to Canaan to preserve their life. We know from recorded scripture, and I hope we understand, that God's primary concern about each one of us is with our spiritual health. 
But in the process, God does not ignore our physical welfare. God is not all one-sided, you know, just a spiritual being over here, and he no, no, has no concern about the temporal or the physical. He does. He created it all. It's a matter of concern to him. But our problem is we tend to get it all backwards, right? We, we tend to reverse it. And we tend to think that our physical welfare is most important of all. And our spiritual welfare can just kind of drag along as it will. And, and we're so concerned about our aches and our pains and, and our illnesses, and we don't even stop to think sometimes about what is really our spiritual health. Because that is so much more significant not only in the eternal scheme of things, but in the eyes of God Almighty at the very moment we're thinking those thoughts. I think one of the most important measurements of true spiritual maturity is when we finally reverse that picture and we finally think, first of all, about where we're standing with God and how we're walking with God, and then we put our physical welfare in a secondary position. We realize that whether we have all this money stored up for retirement is not the crucial thing. Oh, the scripture teaches us to be wise and, and to you know, prepare for the future, but, but sometimes we get all taken up by this and we're watching the stock market and we're gritting our teeth, you know, which, is it going up, is it going down? And, and you know, we're to be anxious for nothing, especially those kinds of things, because the stock market can go, pardon the expression, to hell. And, and, and that isn't going to necessarily change our lives one little bit if God so chooses to bless us in spite of it all. So God's perspective on things is to recognize that our spiritual welfare is the most important thing of all. And when we come to that realization, we have a measure of spiritual maturity within us. This is one of the areas in what, in what is popularly called the health and wealth gospel, which is preached by some today, is one of the areas in which that gospel is so insidiously damning because it puts the emphasis primarily upon the physical and temporal rather than upon the spiritual and the eternal. God meant for us to live like kings and to have wealth and health in this world well, maybe for some and maybe not for others. But the spiritual welfare is what God is really concerned about for all. And he may bless some with wealth and he may bless another with poverty. But God is equally concerned with the soul and the reaction of that person and what that person does with what God gives him or doesn't give him than he is with how much we have. Because it's all going to be gone one day anyway, right? Naked we came into this world, and naked we'll go back as we melt into the dust of the earth. And, uh, you know, to quote the great prophet, we won't take it with us. And yet we seem like sometimes we think we will. Joseph told his brothers, tell my father that we have a place down here for him and the whole clan to live. And his implication is that you're going to be able to live down here autonomously. I'm not bringing you down here to be my slave or the slave of Pharaoh or to be the servant of the government of Egypt. You're here to live freely in the land. This is clearly, this, this, this act 
clearly demonstrates Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers. Because he could have said, bring it all down here, buddies. You're going to serve me. I'm going to take it out on you. I'm going to get a pound of flesh out of each one of you for what you did to me. He could have done that. But not with God in his heart, he couldn't. Not in obeying God, he couldn't. Because even if we have hurt in our heart created by another Christian, it is not our right to hold that against that person. It is our right to forgive whether they accept our forgiveness or not. Because we only hurt and damn ourselves when we drag it around with us. It doesn't do us one bit of good. And it really probably doesn't hurt the others at all, those who offended us. And so we have Joseph demonstrating this wonderful forgiveness. He says, I'm going to bring you down and put you in the land of Goshen. I don't think that term was foreign to them at that particular time. But the meaning of the name Goshen and its exact location are uncertain to modern scholars of ancient Egypt. But later on in, in the scripture, it, it associates the land of Goshen with the land of Ramses. And because Ramses was the name of a city in the northwestern part of the delta of the Nile, generally speaking, we place Goshen in that, not northwestern, but northeastern portion of the Nile delta. Maybe 50 to 100 miles northeast of the city of Memphis, where this event that we're reading about apparently took place. What's interesting is that of all the portions of Egypt to which they might go, uh, this is the only portion of Egypt where some significant vegetation might yet exist upon which their animals could graze and have a hope of surviving. But really, being in that part of Egypt had a couple of other blessings for the family of Jacob. First of all, they would be closer to Canaan the trip would be short, the shortest possible trip, and they would be close to their homeland, and they could always have that feeling that if things didn't go right, they could squirt on back up to Canaan if they wanted to. You know? So it would give them that, that feeling of uh, security, if you will. But secondly, and probably even more importantly, Goshen was out on the edge of Egyptian civilization so that they would be less likely to be engulfed by the Egyptians or to aggravate the Egyptians who, as we've already noted, were extremely xenophobic. And so there's less likely to be friction between them as they're way out here on this edge of the land of Egypt than if they had been placed down in the heart of Egypt, say, south of Memphis. I think the brothers are still standing there you know, while Joseph is saying all of the time, their, their mouths are still hanging open. And how, why do I think that? Well, uh, Joseph said in verse 12, Your eyes have seen and the eyes of my brother Benjamin have seen. It is my mouth that is saying this. Come on, guys. <laughs> I'm really saying this. I'm really Joseph. This is really what you've got to do. You're not dreaming. I, Joseph, the ruler of Egypt, I'm truly saying these things to you. He said, go and tell my father of the splendor of my splendor here in Egypt. Now, can we even begin to imagine the emotional impact of all of this, of these words? 
Not only has the lost one been found, but he is the most powerful potentate on planet Earth. It's outlandish. And I think the outlandishness of it all finally impacted Joseph himself. And he's overwhelmed. And, and the scripture says that he fell on his brother Benjamin and they just cried on each other's shoulder. I mean, this is the brother he hadn't seen since his brother Benjamin was just a little toddler. And here he is a man. And of course, Benjamin probably didn't even remember Joseph. I mean, he knew he had a brother, Joseph. But, you know, how much do you remember from when you're two? I, I know some of you probably do remember things when you're two. I have a hard time remembering anything before I was 12, you know. The only thing that really helps is, you know, parents take pictures and home movies and the things, and, and you think you remember it because you've seen the images, you know. Maybe you do remember those things, but I, I don't think Benjamin much remembered him, and so here he is, the long-lost brother who was just a, uh, uh, you know, a faint image in his mind is now in his arms. And they cried and they cried tears of joy on one another's shoulders. And then he turned to each of his other brothers and he embraced them and he wept on them too. Now, did he weep five tears on Benjamin for every one he wept on the other brothers? I don't know. And I don't think they cared or they were concerned about the fact that he was showing so much concern for his brother Benjamin. It was natural because Benjamin, for one thing, had not been there when he was sold into Egypt. He had not taken part in it. So they all understood and held nothing against Joseph. And so what happens? Years and years, 20 long years of pent-up emotions are bursting forth out of the eyes of these, well, they've cried, they've poured out emotions on one another, and now they've had a great catharsis, and they're able to have a real family reunion. Have you ever been to a family reunion which hasn't been all that cracked, you know, all it cracked, was cracked up to be because there's, there's feelings between you and someone else there, or between them and you? And, and you know, you just can't, just let it all hang out because everybody has forgiven everybody and everybody's loving everybody and everybody understands and everybody stands before God in the same, at the same level. And you can just have this sense of God's presence and that's what, certainly what they felt. And they were able to just talk and to tell about the previous 20 years in each of their lives. And Joseph told them all what happened, and, and they in turn told him what had gone on over the previous 20 years. And I, I think Judah even spilled the beans about his dallying with his own daughter-in-law. Wasn't anything to be proud of, but I think he was honest. This was a day that none of them would ever forget. A, a day of spiritual and emotional healing. To conclude, let me read a few words from Psalm 147. First three verses, Psalm 147, begins with the words, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. 
and he gathers the outcasts of Israel, he heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. He heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds, as he has done for Joseph, and he has done for Benjamin, and for the ten other brothers, and as he soon will do for Jacob, who was otherwise known as the Prince Israel.